Matthew chapter 5, the law of the king, Jesus speaking, says these words. Now, I gave you the, the thesis statement in verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we, when we began this uh, series in Matthew or the verse-by-verse teaching, we gave it the title, The Gospel of the Kingdom. And we talked about how the kingdom of God is one of the primary things we need to understand in our Bibles. Jesus is the king. We are his subjects. We have entered into the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are citizens of that kingdom. We are under the rule of that king. And up on a hill or a mountain, Jesus begins to teach the law of the king. And the king does have laws. And we are to submit to those laws. What are those laws? Well, Jesus will begin to illuminate the truth of the scriptures and he will answer a question that I think has been probably being uh, chirped at among the scribes and Pharisees. Remember that when Jesus preaches this sermon, about a year has gone by of his earthly ministry. The synoptic gospels don't record, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record that year, but John does. Jesus has gone into the temple and cleansed it, John chapter 2. He's had the interaction with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He's had the interaction with the woman at the well. There's a lot that's gone on in terms of Jesus' ministry. The scribes and the Pharisees are following him around to see what he preaches, see what he says. They're an investigative party, if you will, measuring his words. And something like this was probably going on. They were probably saying... This uh, rabbi, this teacher, this would-be Messiah, as they would see it, maybe he doesn't hold up the law of Moses. Maybe he diminishes the law. Maybe he is teaching a different ethic. I mean, we just heard him teach about these beatitudes and how do they link with the law of Moses, the great lawgiver. And Jesus says these words, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish New King James, destroy the law or the prophets. I want you to notice it's not just the law, it's the prophets. It would include Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah. I did not come to abolish, but to what? To fulfill. Now the word abolish here is a Greek word which means to overthrow, to deem as no longer valid, to repeal or to annul. Jesus says, that is not what I came to do. I have not come to abolish the law, to repeal its force, to lessen its gravity, to take anything away from it. In fact, Jesus is going to add a layer to the divine law that is going to shock his listening audience. Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was simply an outward righteousness where they were trying to impress people. They wanted to look religious. They wanted to make sure that people were convinced that they were keepers of the Torah, but they were not. Their righteousness did not go into their heart. And that is Jesus' thesis statement, but he wants to make sure that they understand and we understand. He has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. Now in the uh, narrative of the Gospel of Matthew in the birth accounts, we've seen a number of times this happened that 
the scripture might be fulfilled. Where Jesus was born, according to Micah, that he would be called Emmanuel, according to Isaiah. We have many, many scriptures where this occurred that it might be fulfilled. John the Baptist has Jesus come to him for baptism. John says, you need to, be, you need to baptize me, not me, you. Let this be so that we might fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill. So much for the people who say, well, if Jesus uh, didn't touch on a topic, let's say a moral issue of our day, well, then it must be okay. Wrong. Jesus was pro-Old Testament. Jesus did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word in Greek to fulfill is plerao. It's the uh, normal word that's used for the filling up of a net with fish or the filling up of a vessel with water or food and the like. That's the idea. Jesus came to fulfill it, to fill it up. He is the consummation of the law and the prophets. Take a look just ahead of us to Matthew 11. Look at Matthew 11. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist Matthew 11, verse 12. And he says these words, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now here's what was happening. The law and the prophets were all coming forth in books of our Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and then John came. John was the voice crying in the wilderness, and then he turned people to the Lamb of God. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You could say it this way. Look, there's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. There he is, Messiah, servant of the Lord. Go back to Matthew 7, look at verse 12 just for a second. What do the law and the prophets represent? Matthew 7, verse 12 puts it this way. In everything, therefore, 7, 12, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. What's your Bible say? For this is the law and the prophets. When Jesus was asked later in Matthew, turn back to chapter 5, What's the great commandment of the law? He says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang the entire law and the prophets. When the two uh, uh, disciples were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened the scriptures to them and he showed them how he was... uh, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, you can write down Luke 24, 44, and 45. Jesus did not come to abolish. Don't think that. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. They all pointed to him. Later in the book of Matthew, we'll say this. Jesus will say, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen in this way? In Luke 24, 44, and 45, just so you can hear it, He said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In Hebrews 10, 7, the writer says, Behold, I have come of the Messiah. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says these words, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, this is how authoritative the law is. Until heaven and earth passes away, you could say the law isn't going anywhere. Our modern vernacular might be till hell freezes over. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away later in the book of Matthew, but my words will never pass away. There's been a prominent teacher in the evangelical world who was quoted as saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. His last name happens to be Stanley. That is a lie. Because Jesus Christ, the only Bible that was there when Jesus is preaching was the Old Testament. We cannot understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament, amen? Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament, or you could say in one sense concealed, but then revealed in the New. Jesus says, look, until heaven and earth pass away, notice how precise this is, not the smallest letter. You can imagine like a little stroke on a Hebrew letter or a Greek letter. Or stroke shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Scholars have pointed out that Jesus is making a case here, an emphatic case, for the verbal inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is the inerrant word of God down to the smallest stroke of the letter. If you mess with the word of God, even in the smallest of details, you are messing with God's holy word. That's what Jesus believed about the Bible. That's what Jesus said about the word of God. Don't mess with it. Now, sometimes we, maybe you jump on YouTube and you see somebody uh, on the street and they say, well, there's a, there's a difference between a number in Chronicles and a number in Kings or uh, Samuel. What do we make of that? Well, remember the Bible was copied by individuals over the centuries. We didn't have Xerox machines way back in the day. That didn't come along until the Gutenberg press, right? So back in the day, the Lord entrusted a group of people with the preservation of the Bible. And they were the Jewish people, and they were extremely meticulous about copying Scripture. There's so many little details that they would follow, washing their clothes when they wrote the name of God, counting words from you know, backwards and forwards, etc. And just so you can be at ease, even though there have been some scribal mistakes that we've discovered, we discovered them by comparing manuscripts because we have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. And here's something just so you have this in your pocket. In the late 1940s, a discovery was made called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most of you have heard about that. And those scrolls held much of the Old Testament in them, and they were a thousand years earlier than the ones that we possessed before that discovery. 
So what would you want to do if you had a thousand year gap from the earliest manuscripts we possessed at the time and now you made a new discovery a thousand years earlier? What are, you, what are you going to do? You're going to compare them to see if there's accuracy. Well, they did this with the book of Isaiah. They found that in the thousand year window of all these copies being made, it was 95% accurate from the thousand year uh, different manuscripts and the only difference was in the 5% was in sentence structure and spelling of certain words. Nothing of the uh, core doctrines was ever touched. The Bible has been preserved through time. Now here's my point. There are some in our culture that are called deconstructionists. Some who are called liberal uh, theologians or progressive Christians. And here's what they're saying. They're saying the Old Testament law about this or that, uh, sexuality, marriage, morals, don't worry about that stuff because if Jesus didn't bring it up, then it doesn't matter. If he didn't address it, it's okay. Let me just say to you that what we just read is Jesus saying he believes the whole Old Testament down to the little stroke on a letter is authoritative and not to be messed with. Until heaven and earth pass away, these words will not pass away. Now I want you to see what he says about this particular topic. And before we go there, just a a few scriptures to kind of maybe fill this back in. Psalm 119, 89 says, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. John 10, 35 says, the scripture cannot be broken. Those are Jesus's words. The law and the prophets, not even a jot or a tittle. Uh, Just to give you a little bit on that. uh, The law and the prophets stand uh, as completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said even in Luke 4, reading Isaiah 61, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The smallest letter translates iota, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, To Jesus' Jewish hearers, it would represent the yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which looks something like an apostrophe. A stroke literally means a little horn, refers to the smallest marks that help distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. It was a small extension off of a letter, similar to a seraph in modern typefaces. Jesus is saying to the very smallest stroke on a letter, the law is authoritative and not to be messed with. Now look at verse 19. Whoever then annuls, if you have the NIV, it says anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments, not the big ones, even the least. There's 613 commandments and subcommandments that are articulated in scripture. Whoever, I don't care if it's rabbi so-and-so who oversees the school of so-and-so, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You you know how you can guarantee a demotion in the kingdom of God? Teach people that not all of the word of God applies to their lives. 
Instantaneous demotion in the kingdom of God. Someone might say, I don't care. As long as I'm sweeping floors in the kingdom of God, I'm cool, baby. Yeah, but you could have a mansion and a yacht. So are like, I don't know how to respond to that. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Okay, we're not gonna push that too far. That's almost a little bit of humor there. But here's my point. If someone is a liberal theologian, someone says we can relax the standards of marriage and sexuality because Jesus never brought it up. They don't know what they're talking about. Jesus endorses the whole Old Testament as authoritative until heaven and earth pass away. That word will not pass away. Now, let me just say this. I think for all of us, we were resonating with this, but let me just say this to anyone who watches this. If you do that, you are guaranteeing yourself a demotion in the kingdom of God. Now, you want to know how you get a promotion in the kingdom of God? Teach the Bible. Amen? Teach the word of God as living, authoritative, and powerful. And you'll be called great in the kingdom of God. This is all over our Bibles. Paul uh, in Galatians 1 says, don't preach another gospel. Don't believe someone who preaches another gospel. And you say, well, what is going on here? What is Jesus after? Well, he's after the scribes and the Pharisees. And I gave you the thesis verse. Read it again now in light of what Jesus just said. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This might be as radical as saying to a Catholic person, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pope, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The hearers of this would be shocked because when they looked at the scribes and Pharisees, you know what they thought of them? These are the guys that keep the law. These are the ones who, down to the minutest details, dress the right way, eat the right way, fast, tithe, do all the things that you're supposed to do, right? But they did it only to impress men. They did not do it because they had the love of God in their heart. And the six things that Jesus will bring up, he'll bring up murder, adultery, uh, the taking of oaths, and a few other things, the, the love of God and love of enemies, are a direct assault on what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing to play games with the law of God. I'll give you an example. They would take an oath, and I'll contemporize this. Let's just say that someone's in the court of law, and it's something like this. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And someone repeats that hand on the Bible and says, yes, I swear. But then they lie on the witness stand. And then they get confronted and they say, how could you do that? You made an oath. Oh, but I didn't make it on a King James Bible. It was an NIV. And you all know that the NIV is the nearly inspired version, right? And it wasn't genuine leather. Now, that's a contemporary example of what they were doing. They said, well, we swore by this, but we didn't swear by that. So that, that gives us a little wiggle room, right? Or here's what was happening. They, they hated people in their hearts. They thought Gentiles were only created to uh, basically feed the fires of hell. 
They looked down on women. They looked down on children. They looked down on everybody, people who were in the wrong school, in the wrong economic class, you name it. They hated people in their heart. In the back room, the religious leaders were getting together and saying, ah, oh, that guy's a fool. That guy's an idiot. That guy's this. That guy's that. They hated people. Jesus said they hated me without a cause. And Jesus is about to call them out and say, you're a bunch of murderers. You are breaking the law of God. You teach others. You, you clean the outside of the cup. You look good to men, but inside there's corruption. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Torah teacher and he confronts our hearts. You know, uh, when we begin to hear the word of God and I remember way back in the day, some three decades ago, I would hear the Bible taught and I concluded that that preacher had a copy of my diary. There was only one problem. I didn't have a diary. <laughs> and there were things being illuminated about my own heart that were frankly hard to take. And I can see it in some of your eyes today. And I saw it at first service. Enough, uncle, you're gonna say that at the end of this message. And I wanna tell you, I have some good news to share with you at the end. But Jesus doesn't mess around with the outward stuff. God looks not on the outward. He looks where? 1 Samuel 16, 7, at the heart. That's what he cares about. He knows that we can fool people. He knows that we can impress people with our religiosity. But that's not what impresses God. Proverbs 23, 6 through 8, in light of those thoughts, reads this way. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and you will waste your compliments. Proverbs 23, 6 through 8. Here's the image. You go to dinner and it's the obligatory uh, exchange of pleasantries. It's something like this. You ever have had this happen? You meet somebody and they seem so interested in you and so nice. Oh, so what, oh, you have, oh, what a wonderful family. You're a good looking pair. And, uh, you know, hey, maybe we should get together. Here's my business card. Let's have lunch sometime. And then you have the meal and you find out that he represents an organization. Everybody, any, any had, uh, have this happen before? And that organization will, within 20 years, if you do things the right way, make you a millionaire and then you can focus on ministry. But the only one who's going to become a millionaire in this uh, so-shaped uh, scheme is the person having lunch with you. So you say something like this. You know, sir, with all due respect, I I'm really not interested. Watch how his attitude toward you shifts. That's what the writer of Proverbs is saying. Don't buy all the compliments and stuff because his heart is not with you. He says, eat and drink. But he's thinking in himself that you are simply just a means to his end. And the father says, I'll have none of that. Jesus says, I'll have none of that. You religious leaders were supposed to represent me to the Gentiles. And you've made it so difficult for people to move on the Sabbath. 
You won't lift a finger, but you'll put weights on their shoulders. I could go on and on, but I think you guys understand what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, it shouldn't shock you that your righteousness needs to surpass them because their righteousness is plastic. Their heart is not in love with God. Now, he'll give two examples. We'll only do two of the six. The first one is the sixth commandment. Notice 521 of Matthew. You've heard that the ancients uh, were told, you shall not commit murder. Now, that's the sixth commandment, and that's Exodus 20, verse 13. And whoever commits murder, now here's their part, shall be liable to the court. Now, he, he quoted the sixth commandment, but then part B of that verse is man. And the scribes and Pharisees had, had added layer of tradition to the commandments so that they almost amalgamated together in the people's minds. Now, what's the Old Testament penalty for murder? Death. Now, the court could be involved to make sure there were two or three witnesses because you couldn't be convicted on the testimony of one witness. And so, yeah, there could be a legal proceeding. But here's what I think is going on. I think if someone committed murder back in the day and they were high up in society, a religious elite, they knew the judge, they had money, they could go into that court and not be condemned. They might hire a, a you know, sophisticated lawyer with a nice suit who had a glove that you know, seemed too small to fit the hand and a pleasant rhyme, something like, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? Sorry if I offended anybody there. And I'm not talking about the juice, I'm talking about the Jews. You see, you guys, but anyway, never mind, that's, sorry, Lord. Anyway, I'm going somewhere with this. Here's where I'm going. If you were a poor person and something like this happened and maybe it was debatable what occurred, you had no rights, no privileges because you didn't have the money and you didn't have the connections and you didn't have the relationships. But the religious leaders were in league with Rome. They could probably buy their way out of anything. And Jesus came to shine light on the truth. And that's why they wanted to kill him. Because he got to the truth of what was really going on. Now, he's going to ramp this up and he's going to compare murder to hatred. He says, I say to you, okay, you've heard the command, you've heard what they've added to it, but I say to you, 22, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. I think he's going now into God's court. That's my personal view. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, What's that mean? That means rockhead. What? <laughs> Empty head. Something like this. You are worthless. You heard the little kid who said to his mom, Mom, why is it that the idiots are only out when dad is driving? <laughs> I don't know if dad says raka, but anyway. Jesus is comparing hatred to murder and confronting 
the religious spirit of the day that felt like you could hate people but still be good with God. John picks this up in 1 John and he says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. 1 John 3, I think it's verse 15. How can you say you love God whom you haven't seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? We're going back to the law and the prophets. They hang on two commands. Love God, love others. Jesus is basically saying this. If you can disdain people left and right, and yet you think you represent heaven's heart, you're wrong because God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's why Jesus was there. So he says, look, if you, if you say you're a worthless so-and-so, you're an idiot, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And get this, if you say, whoever shall say you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And all God's people said, gulp. Now, is Jesus doing this for shock value? He's gonna use some hyperbole in this sermon, extreme language to make a point. I don't know, but I'll, I'll say this. If someone can be so hateful in their heart, they probably don't know God, and therefore they're on their way to judgment. It was unthinkable to these guys. Everybody else was supposed to be coming into judgment, not them. But they were wrong. So Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? And it, and it makes me search my heart. It makes me ask the question, what do I mutter when no one else is listening about people made in the image of God. I will tell you this, I, I struggle with some people in our culture and I struggle with some people who are in leadership in our culture. And I'm not sure that all of my thoughts are prayers. Can I get a witness? And so Jesus' words caused me to search my heart. So what do I do if this has been my mindset? My mindset, look at 23. If therefore, Jesus speaking, you're presenting your offering at the altar. The only altar was in Jerusalem at the temple and the altar would represent something like the day of atonement. You go there, you confess your sin on the head of an animal. It dies on the altar, sheds its blood to cover your sin. Well, if you go to Jerusalem and you're there for the feast, and you are presenting a sacrifice. An animal's gonna die for your sin, and you remember that your brother has something against you. There's hatred, bitterness between the two of you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. Notice the order. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. We might write here in our Bibles, Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's saying that relationships trump religion. If you walk into a church building, praise the Lord, hallelujah, yet you've got a wake of destruction in your path on the way to the church, there's a problem. Example, we had a, Sherman Garnett 
New, a leader of our men's ministry, tells a story. He's a retired sheriff. He says he, he got called out to a home, a domestic violence call, and, and a man there that got confronted had just beat up his wife. He had, he had brutalized her physically, and it came out that he had done this multiple times. But he was trying to get out of the house before the officers arrested him because he was on his way to teach a Bible study. Uh, I got to get out of here. Wait, one more, honey. I got to go teach a Bible study now. I'm not kidding. This is a real story. So Sherman said that when he got the guy in the back of the police car, he said to him, dude, help me understand how you feel like you could beat your wife and you're on your way to teach a Bible study? Don't you see something wrong here? Well, I, I guess the guy felt bad. I don't know if he repented or not. I was in a class in another state. Guy uh, in the class tells me that on the East Coast, he's part of a network of churches, a denomination, where in some of the denominational churches, they have pastors who have mistresses on the side. He said, one pastor I know of has three or four mistresses other than his wife, and everybody knows about it in the congregation, and he still preaches every Sunday in the pulpit. I said, how is that possible? Well, in that denomination, they believe that the pastor is the man. He's God's anointed. So no one can confront him. So he just keeps going on with it. And everybody knows about it, but nobody does anything about it. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that you've got to be perfect to represent the king because none of us would qualify. He is saying if there's a disconnect and you've so compartmentalized your life that you think you can do this and then do this? Uh-uh. Your righteousness better surpass that because all that is is a game. So he says, look, if you're presenting your offering and you realize there's something amiss in a relationship, take care of it. Let me read two scriptures for you. For the sake of time, don't turn there. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 reads this way. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Listen to David after he sinned with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, 10 through 12 reads this way. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That could be my prayer every day. Lord, give me a willing spirit. Change me. He says in verse 15 of Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Jesus said, be poor in spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is saying, if I could have come to the temple and offered an animal in light of what I did with her, I would do it, but that's not what God wanted from me. What did God want? 
He wanted my heart to change. He wanted me to know that when I slept with her and had her husband killed, I had offended him and he must do a new work in my heart. Sinful anger must be dealt with. This anger that Jesus talks about is a seething, resentful anger that you continue to chew on and smack on and you know, think about your next comeback or your next line or the, the way you'll have distaste for this person. That is not God's heart. So I have to pray, create in me a clean heart, oh God, if that's my attitude. Now Jesus gives a parable to tell us more about what to do. Make friends quickly, 25, with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. In order that your opponent, this would be one who you owe money to, may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. That's a debtor's prison. For I truly say to you, you shall not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. So here's Jesus' illustration to kind of put the bow on this. Let's say you're walking to a court and you owe this person walking with you a ton of money and you're walking along and you're about to go to a court and get in th thrown into a debtor's prison if you can't pay. As you're walking along, you might say to this guy, hey, um, sorry about that. Could we work out a payment plan? Could we settle outside of court? And if the guy says, all right, uh, let's work it out, then you've worked it out prior to going before the court. That's what Jesus is saying. Work it out now. Don't wait until you're before the judge and all the facts of the case come out. Amen? Now, I know you can't take much more, but I do want to show you one more because I did this at first service, so I'll move quickly. Truly, I say to you, you won't come out of there until you've paid the last cent. So look at, here's the second topic he addresses. The scribes and the Pharisees were divorcing their wives because they lusted for other women and they did, did it under the cloak of the law. You could divorce your wife if she burnt the toast, overcooked your eggs, or whatever. You write a certificate of divorce, she's gone. Now, legally, you could be with another woman because Moses said you could write a certificate of divorce. Why are you divorcing her? We have irreconcilable differences. What may they be? She burnt the toast. Change the setting on the toaster, brother. Oh, no, 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 no. She overcooked the egg. She over-salted my potatoes. I want a divorce. Why do you want a divorce? Because I really want to be with that other woman. But I know that if I go this route, I'll be legal according to the law. Jesus says, no. Look, here's the deal. You've heard that it's said you shall not commit adultery. Of, of course, that's a commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery within, with her in his heart. Now, a lot of talk's been given on this verse. Let me just say this. The language means this. You're eyeing a woman, not so, you, you're walking down the street and a good-looking individual passes you by. What should you do? Head down, whatever I run into, you know, so be it. Look, <laughs> appreciation of beauty is not a bad thing. You can look at a guy or a gal and say something like this, good job, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that you've crossed over into sin. Beauty's all around us. God is a God of beauty, right? 
He made people in his image. There's beautiful people. There's nothing wrong with an appreciation of beauty. But if you begin to gawk at a person and undress them with your eyes and the plan of action in your brain is to be with them sexually, you've crossed the line into adultery. Now, in both these cases, Jesus is not saying the act is equivalent with a thought, but he's saying on a spiritual level, it basically is because they thought they were getting away with something and they weren't in heaven's eyes. So there's a difference between appreciating beauty and making a plan to be with someone sexually or fantasizing in your own head. I think you all know the line there. So what do we do, Pastor Michael? Well, Jesus is gonna give us a couple final verses. Here's what it says. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I didn't say that. Don't send me emails. Jesus said it. That's our Lord, right? Now, he's using extreme language. He's not telling people to cut off your hand or pluck your eye out. That would be an ugly scene. And some ancients took him quite literally and did things to their body that they shouldn't have done, like castrating themselves. I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's just saying this. Take radical measures with sin. You go to your doctor. Your doctor does a cholesterol test. And the report comes back. We're seeing uh, remnants of cookies and cream ice cream (laughs) in your bloodstream. You say, well, that's probably accurate because I do partake three times a day and twice on Sundays. And he says, you need to get this out of your diet or you're going to be in trouble and your heart's not going to be healthy. So imagine you leave the doctor's office and you go over to Rite Aid, which has a tremendous selection of wonderful flavors of ice cream. And you don't just get the small box, which is now a ripoff. You know, they're smaller now. It's a whole different story, but you get the tub of cookies and cream ice cream. You buy it, you put it in the freezer, and then as you walk by, the door of the freezer creeps open ever so slightly, and the cookies and cream begins to say, partake of me, you know you want to. And you're like, oh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the cookies and cream. I will not, I will stand strong. I want to use the word fool. That's so dumb. You don't buy the ice cream and then leave it there and hope you will be able to overcome. You've set yourself up for a fall. That's what Jesus is saying. Take quick, radical measures with sin so that you don't fall on your face in the kingdom of God. Amen? And look, here's the good news. We're we're at the end. Thank God. I need a savior. The Sermon on the Mount shows me I desperately need a savior. Because I feel pretty good when I'm pointing fingers at everybody else. Those guys over there, ancient Israel, 
charlatans, phonies, those people, them, they. And then all of a sudden the light of the word comes into my heart and I go, ruh row. <laughs> I got some soul searching to do. I need a savior. And the good news is the one who preached the sermon took my penalty. Would you bow your heart with me? Jesus, you're the Torah teacher. And yet you suffered the curse of the law. Galatians tells us that you took that curse. Though you were completely innocent, though you fulfilled the law, you were perfect in heart, obedience, and outward action. Yet you had come on a saving mission to save your people. Thank you that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not anything that I can do because if you kept a record of my sin, Lord, I would fall and be dust. But you nailed my sin to your cross. The commandments that screamed out against me, you took the nails, you took the shame because you knew that without that sacrifice, I would be toast in the court of heaven. Thank you for the resurrection. Why don't you pray along with me if you need to articulate a prayer of asking God to save you or rededicating or just thanking him for salvation. Lord, you resurrected from the dead and when I think on the cross and I think about what you did for me, that you bore my shame though you fulfilled the law, what can I say? Thank you for being my savior. Cry out to him, thank him right now. Thank you for being my savior. I do repent of my sin and I'm so grateful that I have the righteousness of Jesus credited to my account. That's what the cross means. That's what the resurrection means. Thank you, God. We have such good news to bask in. Salvation happens in a moment of time. Sanctification is a process. Thank you that you're changing my heart. Oh, Lord, I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm not the man I used to be. Thank you. Thank you that what you started in me you're going to finish. Thank you that it's already been paid in full and we're just waiting for that day when everything will be consummated. Oh, Lord God, help us to be authentic. Playing games doesn't in any way impress you. But a contrite heart, those beatitudes that say, blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, I understand those a little bit more now that I've seen your words in this section, oh God. Make us like you. Father, I thank you for this precious congregation and their devotion to the word of God and their passion for the gospel. In our generation, Lord, we see so many things going on, but we see some good things happening as well, and we want to celebrate those we pray that revival would break out over our land. 
then in, instead of us trying to diminish the power and authority of the Bible or the God of the Bible, we would come back under your kingship and find right there great delight for our souls. I ask all of that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.